this week on Hope for the Broken. We need to pay attention to God's voice. And as we study through 1 Samuel this year, let me just tell you what my prayer that God would accomplish in our study here, that we would learn to hear the voice of God, that we, beloved, would become a people that drowned out the voices of this world, but we are so in tune with the voice of God that we hear it clearly and we say yes and amen and we run after his instructions for our life. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we begin a new year with a new sermon series called Life Lessons. In this sermon series, we look at the lessons the Lord has given us in 1 Samuel. Here's our pastor, Chris Wrigley, with part one, titled, Introducing Samuel. Well, the new year is an opportunity to begin a new teaching series. And so this morning, I'm excited to jump into a series that I've entitled Life Lessons as we study the book of 1 Samuel in the pages of the Old Testament. And so let me invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. And by the way, as, we, uh, as you came in, you saw one of these cards on the seat. Uh, this is actually at the bottom. It's a detachable card. There's perforated. And you can actually tear that off and use that as an invite card to invite your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers to come be a part of this message series. And then you can also take notes there on the back today. And uh, so I hope that you'll take advantage of that. You know, life is filled with transitions. We grow up. We transition from children into adults. My daughter, who is 19, will turn 20 this year in August. How did that happen? I don't even know how that happened, how we got to she being 20 years old, but she is transitioning from a teenager into an adult. And I often tell her, adulting is hard, baby girl. I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. It's just hard. And so she's, she's becoming uh, an adult. Transitions can be challenging from being single to being married, uh, from having no kids to beginning to have kids from rearing kids to launching kids, and from launching kids to having grandkids. You know, I'm looking forward to having grandkids. You know, I can wait on that. I'm not in a rush with my kids anytime soon, but I'm looking forward to being a grandkid or a grandfather. And uh, I am a grandkid, and, uh, but I'm looking forward to being a grandfather. And uh, I think we've already picked out our names. Kathy's going to be Lolly. I'm going to be Pop. So you can go to Lollipop's house. It'd be awesome. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to, to that and, uh, and, and spoiling grandkids. But life seems to be one transition to another. We transition. The book of Samuel is known by most scholars as a book of transition. In fact, a Bible is filled with transitions. First, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, being changed, transitioning into the same image. What is that image? The image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is a transition in character. We're being transformed. Then James 1 challenges us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. This is a transition in conduct that we align our lives according to the word of God. 
Peter tells us that we are in a state of transition, that we are foreigners, aliens in this world, that our citizenship is in heaven, but we find ourselves here on earth. This is a transition in our destiny. And Paul describes the tension of this kind of transition. When in Philippians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, live here in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. He's feeling the tension of this transition from this earthly life into that of glory. First Samuel is a book of transitions. And it describes for us, as we're going to see in our study, how Israel transitioned from a theocracy to a monarchy. And somewhere in between there, there was anarchy. (laughs) So it's this book of transitions, theocracy being led by God, being ruled and reigned by God, to a monarchy being ruled and reigned by an earthly king. And, And 1 Samuel lays this out. And Samuel is going to express a warning in this departure from a theocracy transitioning into a monarchy. And God's going to have to tell Samuel, don't worry about it, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And Samuel becomes very concerned about that. But God says, listen, it's about my relationship with them, not their relationship with you. And what we're going to see in our study through this book is that there are many life lessons learned. There are some major theological themes that include God as king of our lives, the power of a covenant, keeping your covenant, what true worship really looks like. It talks about sin and the consequences of sin, and it talks about the theological position of hope, that we can also have a sense of hope. And while there there are these theological themes, there's also many practical life lessons contained in 1 Samuel. Lessons like learning to hear God speak, and also lessons in leadership, how to lead well, and lessons in the outcome of ignoring God's Word, that there is a, that there is a consequence for ignoring the Word of God. Now today is going to be different than we typically do. Typically what we do on a Sunday morning, especially in a study like this, is we pick out a passage of Scripture, we exegete that passage of Scripture, and then we look at how it applies to our lives today. Today, I thought it would be better for us to begin this series uh, in 1 Samuel by looking at an overview of 1 Samuel. So we're going to kind of survey the entire book real quickly today. And then each Sunday hereafter, we're going to take a deep dive into each of those portions of of Scripture and glean from what is contained in in that. And so today, I'm going to give you some background information. I want to look at some key events in the book of 1 Samuel. And then I want to talk about some major takeaways for us and this overarching story of 1 Samuel. I also want to let you know about a resource that I want to make available to you. Um, every Tuesday, by every Tuesday, our, our team uploads our audio sermons from the week. And along with the uploading of those audio sermons, there's also uh, a couple of downloads that are available. My notes that I preach from are there from download, complete with uh, footnotes, so you can know what I'm reading, what I'm studying, uh, where I get some of the things that, that I teach you guys. Uh, but also as a part of those downloads, I want to make available to you an outline of the book of 1 Samuel. 
Uh, I found an outline available from Chuck Swindoll, the great preacher uh, there in the Dallas area, uh, and also founder of Insight for Living Ministries. He created a one-page layout, a one-page overview outline of the book of 1 Samuel. That download will be made available this Tuesday as well. So I hope that you will find that as helpful as it has been for me. But let's begin today by looking at the background of 1 Samuel. I want to invite you to place your finger there in 1 Samuel and turn with me to the table of contents in your Bible. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever heard a sermon on the table of contents in the Bible, but you're about to get one, right? Um, And so look with me in the table of contents. And I think this this will be important uh, as it sets the stage for 1 Samuel. Now, if you've ever wondered why the books of the Bible are arranged the way in which they are, it's arranged very intentionally, but it's not arranged chronologically, right? When we read a textbook, especially a history textbook, we expect to read something as a subsection of history in a chronological sequence, but that's not the way the Bible is arranged. Instead, the Bible is arranged by groupings, as groupings as type of literature, And so what I want to invite you to do is kind of mark these table of contents and write out in the margin what that grouping is, okay? So from Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, often referred to as the Pentateuch, uh, is the law. This is the law of God, right? And so that's the first five books. Then from Joshua through Esther are what is known as historical books, the historical writings about the history of Israel. Job through Solomon is wisdom literature. And then Isaiah through Malachi are, is prophetical literature. It's a writing of the prophets. Now the prophets are further subdivided by major prophets and minor prophets. It has nothing to do with the revelation of the prophecy that they're revealing in their books. It has everything to do with the length of their books. The longer the prophecy, it's considered a major prophet. The smaller the book, it's considered a minor prophet. And that's how the Old Testament is is laid out. So 1 Samuel, if you see 1 Samuel there in your table of contents, you will see it's right in the middle of which section? The historical writings, right? It's, so this is, this is history, and in particular, it's in a subsection of the history books known as the duo books. When I say duo, it means that there's two of them. There's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, right? These are the duo books, and they the, the have two parts to them. These books cover a span of about 575 years. Okay, now interesting trivia for you here. If you're ever taking trivial pursuit, you're going to be lucky that I gave you this, right? Because you need to hold on to this. First Samuel was never, uh, not, let me take that back. When it was originally written was one book with Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel was one book. And in fact, in the, in the first translation from the Hebrew to the Greek, known as the Septuagint, um, they're not called First and Second Samuel. They're not called First and Second Kings. They're not called First and Second Chronicles. Instead, they're called the Book of the Kingdoms. There's First Kingdoms, Second Kingdoms, Third Kingdoms, and Fourth Kingdoms, and it's all the same content. It's just labeled differently, and so we have it broken down into First and Second Samuel. Now, there's also some debate as to who wrote the Samuels. You know, we would think, well, it's Samuel, right? Samuel wrote the book of Samuel. The problem with that is that Samuel dies in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So he can't write the remainder of the book of 2 Samuel. 
All right? And so most scholars believe that, that there were three authors that penned the works of the Samuels. You got Samuel, you got Nathan, you'll remember that name, and you also have Gad, that these are the authors of the book of Samuel. Samuel, like I said, through 2 Chronicles covers a period of uh, 575 years. 1 Samuel covers 115 years. And the key characters that we'll be introduced to in our study are Hannah, Samuel's mother, Samuel, Eli, the priest, King Saul, and then King David. 2 Samuel covers 40 years, specifically focused on the reign and rule of King David. 1 Kings covers 120 years, talking about the reign and rule of King Solomon, which is David's son, and the unified kingdom of Israel. Then at the end of 2 Kings, a civil war takes place, and Israel divides into two kingdoms, the northern kingdoms. The ten tribes form the northern kingdom known as Israel, and the two tribes, the two remaining tribes, form the southern kingdom known as Judah. And then we read in 2 Kings about both uh, nations being taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, you'll remember from our study beginning this time last year in the book of Daniel, where were the Israelites exiled? They were exiled to Babylon. And so this is where Samuel and the kings and the chronicles all fit within the timetable of uh, Jewish history. Now, the direct backdrop for 1 Samuel is the book of Judges. So you go from Judges chronologically into 1 Samuel. And the last verse of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, tells us the, the backdrop by which 1 Samuel begins. This is what that verse says. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? It echoes a lot of our culture today, doesn't it? where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Whatever's true for you is true for you. Whatever's true for me is true for me. And there is no absolute truth. This is kind of the same backdrop to where 1 Samuel begins. And it was actually a hopeless state for the nation of Israel. And it was that way until Samuel arises in leadership. Samuel is a man of great character and integrity and purity, and he leads that way, and the, the people have this sense of hope restored because of his leadership. And so that's the background of 1 Samuel. Now let's take a look at key events in the book. And here's what I want to do. Uh, here's a really good exercise. I, I, want you, I want our church to become students of the Bible. It's God's Word. We need to study it. We need to spend time in it. And, and one of the things that I want you to do as you study the scriptures is pay attention to the subheadings. The subheadings are extremely important. And so what I want to ask you to do is I kind of give a survey of the contents of 1 Samuel. I want you to, to just kind of read along in the subheadings here. And uh, I'm not going to read every single subheading. I'm not going to mention every single one of them, but you'll kind of be able to identify it as we move along. 1 Samuel, like I said, opens up with a great deal of hope. While there was no king and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes at the end of Judges, Samuel is born. And Samuel is a miracle baby. Hannah, his mother, prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give her a child. In particular, that God would give her a son. And God stayed true to his promise to her. And God answered her prayers in the giving of Samuel. She then gives Samuel back to the Lord. And Samuel's life is dedicated to his purpose. He would bring hope to the nation 
as a, as a leader, as a judge. Judges were different than kings. Uh, and they were different in a couple of different ways. First, a judge was someone who heard from God and then pointed the people in that direction that God was leading them. So in a sense, uh, when the judges were uh, in leadership, God was their governor, was their king. And they just led in the direction that God led them. But they were not over the people. Instead, they were among the people. Judges actually had full-time jobs that supported themselves. They didn't get paid by tax revenue. They didn't get paid by taxpayers. They, they had to work, and then they were also leaders providing their own uh, income. And this worked great for the nation of Israel. And the reason why it worked great is because God was their king, and God was leading them perfectly. And right away, in, in the story of 1 Samuel, we read typology. You remember what I've taught you about what a type is? A type is kind of a foreshadowing, maybe a character or an event or a thing that, that ties to a New Testament thing. You know, even in Samuel's birth, it's a miraculous birth, right? Samuel is uh, a godly man. It, it mirrors who? That of Jesus Christ, a miraculous virgin birth who he became the perfect sacrifice living perfectly uh, and becoming the sacrifice for our sins upon the cross at Calvary. And so you see typology. Now Eli was a priest and he had sons and everyone was hopeful that these sons would rise into leadership and be good leaders, but they disappointed. And the Lord God rejected the household of Eli then we have the calling of Samuel by God and Samuel saying, here I am, Lord, I hear you. And God ultimately puts him in the office of judge and he leads in a way so as to reverse all that Eli's sons had done. One of the prominent ways that he does that is by restoring the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place. He brings respect and reverence and honor to the Ark of God, symbolizing the very presence of God. And this wound up being a blessing to the nation of Israel. Then the people came to Samuel and they de demanded a king. They said, look at all these other nations around us, Samuel. They all have kings. We want a king. Someone we could see, someone that could speak audibly to us, someone that could lead us as a victorious warrior. We want a king. And, and Samuel warns them, but God gives them a king. And Saul is anointed the first king of Israel. And this effectively ended Samuel's ministry, and he gives a beautiful farewell speech in chapter 12. And Saul, King Saul, was everything that the people wanted. He was tall, he was dark, he was handsome, he was very well spoken. He was the perfect politician. This is what everybody wanted, but almost immediately things began to deteriorate under his leadership. While Saul looked the part, he had major character flaws. I'm talking major character flaws. He was dishonest, he lacked integrity. He made compromises to the law of God and in dealing with the law of God, and it led to a massive downfall of Saul. And as a result, God rejects Saul and begins to make plans to replace him as king. This is where David is anointed. Now, David is almost the exact opposite of King Saul. He's not the one that everyone would pick. And remember, we learned the story that while man looks at the outward appearance, God looks where? at the heart. 
And David was different than Saul. In fact, Samuel didn't know what to think because God told him to go to Jesse's family and the next king of Israel will be from Jesse's root. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. And, and then he would come and he would look at all of David's sons and he said, or all of Jesse's sons and said, no, it's none of them. Do you have another one? Well, yeah, we have a shepherd boy out there. Well, bring him to me. And that was King David that would become King David. And so the complete opposite of King Saul. David then begins serving in Saul's uh, court as an as a army leader. And David is given much success. You remember the story of David and Goliath, right? David is this battle hero. And, uh, and, and he's kind of a type of Christ, a savior, an, Im- an improbable savior. And this caused Saul to become extremely jealous of David. And then the, what happened is it created this great conflict between Saul, the existing king, and David, the anointed next king. And Saul sought to kill David. So much so that David, at the advice of his friends, had to hide in the wilderness. And he went hiding for many, uh, many, many uh, years. And he had the opportunity to be able to kill Saul and take the throne, but he didn't. He exercised a sense of trust in, in God. Samuel ultimately dies, and the conflict between Saul and David raged on. And it ultimately ends, the book of 1 Samuel ends with Saul taking his own life. A very tragic downfall. All because of a lack of character and integrity. And what we see in 1 Samuel is is a book of transitions. The transitions from hopelessness of life prior to Samuel's leadership. Then we see the glory of allowing God to reign and rule. And yet another transition to life under the rule of an impatient, rash, disobedient, jealous leader and that took them back into a place of despair that's where first samuel ends and second samuel begins now we've discussed the background of now let's look at some key events or we did look at some key events let's look at some takeaways now i believe that there are many takeaways as we'll see in our study of the book of first samuel but even in this overarching story look, the survey of 1 Samuel, I think that there are three major takeaways for us today. And I want to mention those to you. Number one, three things that we must pay attention to. Number one, pay attention to transitions. We need to be alert and we need to pay attention to transitions. I mentioned that this book is a book of transitions. And it's goes from God being ruler over them to an earthly fallen king being ruler over them. But here's what I would tell you. This book covers 115 years. Multiple generations. And I think it serves us well to acknowledge that the shift that we're going to discover in our study here didn't happen overnight. Instead, it was a slow fade that began to transition the Israelites. It was a series of little compromises that building upon each other led to a massive departure. So when I say transitions, think compromises. We need to pay attention to little compromises. We see it in our day and time everywhere, don't we? Little compromises leading to massive departures. And why would we think that 2,700 years of biblical history would not apply to us today What was true for the Israelites in 1 Samuel, beloved, is true for us today. 
And I don't think that our culture has left God entirely, at least not yet, but I do see signs of little compromises leading to massive departures. And you know what? It's not just true in one arena. It's true in our churches. As we make little compromises to the truths of the gospel, it will lead to a massive departure. It's true in our workplaces. As we shift from being people of character to being people that express greed, it's true of our leaders, even true of my own life. And I need to pay attention to transitions. I need to pay attention to little compromises. Here's a truth that I want you to hold on to. If you take nothing away, remember, I'm preaching to myself. Y'all just happen to be in the room. <laughs> Here's the truth. Character matters. Integrity, it matters, beloved. The people of God endured exile, slavery, and oppression. Why? Because their integrity was poor. They made little compromises all along the way. And they embraced the slide rather than correcting the course. I heard a pastor once say, we live on borrowed time when we willfully disobey God. We set in motion some kind of consequence that either we or our offspring will suffer. I was a student minister prior to becoming a pastor for 16 years. And I used to teach students a reoccurring theme. And it's this, that every decision has a consequence. Every decision we make has a consequence. Now, we have a tendency to think consequences are negative in nature, but consequences can be positive, right? And what I would say to students is I would say to you today, good, healthy choices lead to good, healthy consequences, but poor, unhealthy choices lead to poor, unhealthy consequences. My childhood pastor growing up, Brother Lou Brown, used to say it this way, if you eat fat, greasy foods, you will be a fat, greasy dude, right? It's true. There are consequences to the choices that we make. They're either positive or they're negative. And the difference, here, this is key, the difference between a good choice and a bad choice is paying attention to the little compromise. So important when you're choosing to make choices that are aligned to, to Scripture and to do so in an unwavering way. This means, mom and dad, the character of your children matter. It means, leader and supervisor, that the character in the workplace matters. If we learn anything from 1 Samuel, it's that character and integrity are the most important attributes of an individual. And here's the question that I have for us. What are we doing to invest in those things, in other people's lives and even in our own life? How are we allowing God, allowing the Holy Spirit to build character within us? And I want to be careful here because I'm not talking about a works-based salvation. You understand, we can't earn our way to heaven. We are so sinful, we will never get there. Because what is the requirement of heaven? The perfection of God. And we'll never earn our way there. 
But what I am talking about as a person saved by the blood of Jesus, forgiven of our sins, and a relationship restored with Christ, and, get this, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit ought to be making course corrections in our lives. If we do not sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you need to ask yourself a major question. Do I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit ought to be leading us into our character development, leading us into living lives of holiness. And this is separate from salvation, you understand. So we must pay attention to transitions, to compromises. Secondly, 1 Samuel teaches us to pay attention to God's voice. As we're going to see all throughout the book, there are juxtapositions of two kinds of people. There are people that hear God's voice and are obedient. That is Samuel and David. And then there are people who ignore God's voice and are disobedient. That's Eli's sons and Saul. And the course of both of those are greatly determined upon what they do with God's voice. We need to pay attention to God's voice. And as we study through 1 Samuel this year, let me just tell you what the end goal is for me, my prayer that God would accomplish in our study here, that we would learn to hear the voice of God. That we, beloved, would become a people that drowned out the voices of this world, but we are so in tune with the voice of God that we hear it clearly and we say yes and amen and we run after his instructions for our life. That's the end goal of this study, all right? If we just walk away from here with, with knowledge about the book of 1 Samuel, we've missed it altogether. Where are the areas that God is teaching us how to hear his voice? And where are the areas that God is leading us to be obedient in his voice? And let me tell you something. There's a key, I believe, that makes this possible. I think that it is vital to be a person of prayer in order to hear God's voice. I don't think that we're going to hear God speak apart from becoming people that are on our hands and knees before him. And, and the reason why I think that is because prayer, prayer best postures us to hear from God. And we need to know and understand that becoming a people of prayer means that it's not just a one-way street where we take all of our problems to God and lay it at his feet and say, Amen. We seek the very presence of God and allow him to speak back to us. Prayer must become vital in our lives, primary in our lives, and we must include as a part of our prayers a listening time, a time to hear God speak. Consider what Paul encouraged the Ephesian believers with. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, it says, Now to him, now to God, who is able to do what? Far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. This encouragement begs the question, what are we asking God for? If he is able to do abundantly more than we think or we can imagine then do our prayer lives indicate that we believe that to be true? Like, what are we asking God for? 
What are the big things that we're taking to God knowing that he could do even far more abundantly than that that we ask him of? Prayer positions us to hear a response. If we speak to Almighty God, shouldn't we believe that he'll answer us? If not, then prayer is a royal waste of time. But I'm here to tell you that the scriptures remind us time and time again that when we pray, God answers. God speaks. And we must position ourselves in a posture of prayer so that we can hear that. But truth be told, this is confession time. I so arrange my schedule each day that to somehow pause and pray seems like I'm losing ground on the task at hand. Anybody else relate to me? But listen, the most important work that you will do any given day is when you are on your hands and knees upon your face before Almighty God. For it will fuel your every day. Let's become people of prayer. So we must pay attention to transitions, right? To little compromises. And we must pay attention to God's voice. Thirdly, we must pay attention to where God is working. Pay attention to where God is working. 1 Samuel tells some of the most amazing stories contained in the entirety of the Scriptures. As we study these, those of you that grew up in church, you're going to be transported back to Sunday school. When you learn these stories like David and, and Goliath about Samuel hearing the voice of God and saying, here I am, Lord. We're going to study some of those incredible Bible stories. But here's the point of 1 Samuel. It's so that you can see yourselves in their sandals. We will either identify with Samuel and David or we will identify with King Saul. We will either discover that we are people of integrity or that we are people that have many character flaws. And what is it that we choose to do with that revelation determines God's blessing upon our lives. You know, the great Henry Blackaby once said, find out where God is working and join him in that. That's what 1 Samuel is an invitation to. For us to find out where God is working and to join him in it. Because here's the truth. God is still sovereign. God is still at work. And beloved, God will bring his plan to pass. The question is, will we be a part of his plan or will we resist being a part of it? And what was true for Samuel, true for Saul, and true for David is true for us. One's response to the invitation of God affects the outcome of their life. If we are obedient to God, like Samuel and David, we'll live lives of blessing. If we're disobedient to, like Saul, ignoring God's voice and living according to our own terms, we need to be prepared to face the consequences. That hasn't changed. Never will change. Samuel told Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, he said, Saul, listen, buddy, to obey is better than sacrifice. That's true today. To be obedient to God is better than anything that you can offer him. We must be people that are obedient. The truths contained in 1 Samuel are something that have proven themselves throughout the course of history. 
And in the words of the great British statesman Winston Churchill, those that fail to learn from history are what? Doomed to repeat it. First Samuel gives us a, a fork in the road, a crossroad. For us to be a people that say, I will choose to be obedient to God or I'll continue down my own path apart from God. And let me just give you a warning. What was true in those days is true today. The path of obedience to God leads to life. But the path of your own way leads to destruction. And I love you enough to tell you that we must not ignore the history of God's people or else we're doomed to repeat it. Because of the cross, we have an opportunity to choose obedience. And my prayer for our church, above anything else, is that we be a people defined by our obedience to God, not to some preacher, but to Almighty God. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 930 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.